So I don't know if y'all ever heard about this prank um, that somebody did. A group of people got together and decided they were going to have some fun at some people's expense. So they, they planned ahead and they went outside somewhere and they, they gathered on a sidewalk and they all just started looking up and kind of started pointing and they'd just talk amongst themselves, and they'd look, and they just kept looking and staring. And eventually, as people would be walking by, they would kind of start looking too, and they didn't know what they were looking at because no one told them. Of course, the prank was that there was nothing to look at. And, and so what happened eventually is people, stopped, people started gathering, and you started seeing this crowd get bigger and bigger. Everybody's looking up there, and and eventually, the ones that started, it started to kind of drift away one at a time. And then they stood off to the side and kind of watched and snickered a little bit about. Uh, some of them would, others would leave and others would congregate. And just for, and it just, um, it's just kind of a, a goofy prank. And, and another preacher made the observation when he saw that. He goes, you know, so how easy it is to get people to look at nothing. How easy it is to deceive people and get them to look at something that's not even there. And that's at the heart of deceptive philosophies. That's at the heart of the, th- the philosophies and the deceptive teachings of the things in our world. And they exist inside the church as well as outside the church. They exist inside this church. I know that might shock you. And here's why I say that. Because every single one of us has an imperfect view of God. And we're influenced by things besides God's word that mixes with the things we know about God's word and sometimes it comes out well and sometimes it comes out eh, not quite so right okay and we don't always pick up on it and you may think well I don't think I have any of that to worry about I think I'm good and this is what concerns me about today's message is that you'll tune out because you think you don't have an issue with being influenced by deceptive teaching But see, by definition, deceptive teaching deceives you into thinking you don't have any to worry about, does it not? So I hope that you'll you'll give this a chance to to give God a chance to say, maybe there's an area of your life where you haven't realized where the world and our enemies in the world will distort truth enough to deceive us and derail us in our faith. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter in Colossians to the Colossians, the Christians in the, the city of Colossae, because of this very issue. And so he's got the remedy for it. And this is what he basically says. If I could sum it up, I'd say it this way. Resist the deceptive philosophies of the world by fully embracing the fullness of Christ in your life. Resist the deceptive philosophies of the world by embracing the fullness of of Christ that is already in you, already in you, already in me, if we're in Christ, okay? So that's that's it. A question we're going to be answering is, how do we do that? Which I've already summarized, but I want to show you what Paul says, because that's what really matters, not what I say. So let's pray about it together. Lord Jesus, as we come uh, to this place, having lifted you up already, Lord, we want to continue to do that, even now as we look to you as the the one that Paul said uh, in, in verse 19 of chapter 1, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. That is Christ Jesus, the Lord, Jesus of Nazareth. Lord, may we realize that that same fullness resides in your people, resides in us. And help us to not only get to the place where we realize that, but that we would believe that and that we would 
come to grips with the implications of that truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Now last week, we looked at verses 6. We're in chapter 2. We looked at verses 6 and 7 last week, which we said were the hinge verses of the book of Colossians, okay? And what I mean by that is if you go back, if you hinge back to the verses preceding verses 6 and 7, you get um, who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ, because it starts with Christ and who he is and therefore who we are in light of that. But if you hinge to the right, then you get how do we live as a result of being that person. So it's kind of like in this I see that I am a son of God. In this side I realize this is how a son of God lives. Okay? That's kind of the way Paul's letters typically work. They start off very doctrinal. They end very practical. Okay? So this one's no different, and I want you to see, so you could also divide it, you could say doctrine and disciplines, beliefs, behaviors, those kinds of things. So at the end of the day, Paul, is, he wants us to behave a certain way, but he doesn't want it to be behavior modification. He wants it to go deeper than that, because we behave the way we behave because of something deeper than somebody told me to behave this way. We do it because of what we believe. And if our beliefs are healthy and good, then we behave in ways that are healthy and good. And if our beliefs are founded on things that are not healthy and good, then our behaviors reveal that too. It's called good fruit or bad fruit. And we all bear fruit based on what we believe. Okay, so it's important to understand why we believe what we believe and what we believe so that we know how to live it out. So that's why you don't skip the first part of his letters and go to the second part. It's why he always starts with the what and why. So that when he gets to the how, it makes sense. It, not just, it doesn't just tell you how to live. It gives you the want to live that way. Instead of I have to do these things in Christ, I get to do these things in Christ. Okay? All right. Let's look at these. So verses 6 and 7, I just want to read these through. Remember, these are the hinge verses that tell us and, and really set the table for verses 8 through 10, which is what we're going to focus on today. So then, in light of chapters 1 and the first part of chapters 2, so then, in light of that, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, that would be salvation, continue to live, out, continue to live your lives in him, that would be sanctification of salvation, rooted and built up in him, there's your foundation and what you build your foundation on, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught. There's the word of God is the essential ingredient. And then it finalizes, it says, and overflowing with thankfulness. That gratitude is a measure of maturity, okay? You want to know if someone's walking with the Lord in maturity? Look and see how thankful they are in their words and in their actions, especially towards the people that mean the most to them. How grateful are they to those people? All right, now, and then he keeps rolling, okay? So Paul's just writing his letter. He's dictating this letter to someone who's writing it and taking it. Remember, Paul has never been to Colossae. He's never been in this church of people he's writing this letter to. He didn't start this church. Some of his followers started this church. So he's writing to people that don't know him except by reputation, which would have been good. And, and Epaphras, E-P-A-P-H-R-A-S, Epaphras is probably the one who came from Colossae, which is in the region of modern-day Turkey, traveled all the way to Rome, which is where Paul is, because Paul's in prison. Paul's under house arrest for preaching the gospel, for being stubborn about keeping the gospel, making sure he doesn't deny Christ. But he's preaching and teaching. He has some access to people. So Epaphras travels on behalf of his congregation to Rome, and he goes to Paul and he says, my people are struggling because they're being deceived. They're believing lies, and it's causing them to behave in ways that are not Christ-like. I don't know what to do. Can you help me? 
And of course, Paul says, sure, I'll write him a letter. And that's what we get with Colossians. There are other things that are happening. Um, the book of Philemon is probably another letter that was handed and, and carried at the same time. And you can read the one chapter book of Philemon. I think it's really, I think it maybe is the next couple of pages. And, and it talks about a slave and a slave owner. He, they're tied to these same relationships. They know these same people. Okay, it all fits together. It's all one story. So Paul then says this. Okay, he's going to give us two things. He's going to give us the calling or the charge to resist, and then he's going to give us the reasons to resist. Okay, now remember what we're resisting. We're resisting deceitful, false philosophies that our world teaches and that even religions teach, even Christian religions teach. Okay, we'll get into that. Here we go. So he says this, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. See to it. You see that you hear the charge, you hear the, 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 almost, it's like a command. See to it that you make sure this happens. See to it that you do not allow. See that no one takes you captive. I'm reading a book that I had on my shelf for a while and I pulled it off and I was looking through the books, books and, that I haven't read yet that I, I want, that I have and I said, and I picked this one up and I flipped it over and I said, well, if I don't read this one now, I'm never going to read it. And the title of the book is Captive and it's a reporter, Jer Van Dyke. Some of you may remember this CBS reporter back in the day. In the early 2000s, he went to, try, he went to Afghanistan to try to get to the Taliban in Afghanistan and Pakistan. He wanted to talk to them and find out what their side of the story was. I know, crazy, right? And so he... He gets, cap- he gets caught, and it's his story of being a captive of the Taliban. And so when I, when I see this, see to it that no one takes you captive, that's the, mind, that's the word he's using here. He's saying you're captured and your freedom is gone. You're enslaved. You are caught up in a way that you can't do what you want to do. You're alive, but you're not really living. And as, you, as I've been reading through his story, it's been, it's been a fascinating story because he's not just locked in a, a cell and then they walk away and they forget about him. There's a story that is unfolding as he um, gets to know the people he was captured with who were all Afghanis or Pakistanis that were helping him. And as he gets to know his capture, captors and how they treat him and how that goes and and so it's just a, it's an amazing illustration of what it looks like to be kept captive. And what Paul is saying is when you don't resist the philosophies of this world, when you don't resist the teachings and the things in this world that are not true, you are, in essence, captive to those philosophies, to those things, because you're embracing them enough to believe and actually act on them, Okay. All right, so some of those um, things might be things like, okay, I'll, I'll start with some Christian ones, ones we see in church, churches. There's, the, there's the, the teachings where God wants to bless you and, you, and, and this is taken to an excess, to a, a place beyond what the scripture would teach. Yes, God wants to bless you, but it's not all about you. And, and that while God wants to bless you and prosper you, that doesn't mean there's no cross time in your life. There's cross, we live cross-centered lives. We live taking up our cross willingly, okay? And so there's, but the distortion is there's no cross in your life. You deserve and all of those things. 
Then there's other teachings that's very much, you know, duty, 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 do and obey and do and obey, but there's no heart behind it. There's no desire for it because you don't understand why you're doing it. You just know, I need to please this distant God that's up there and I need to please him. And that become, can become like legalism, which is another deceptive philosophy. And again, these things are subtle. Some of you grew up in churches that, that had some of these things and others, there are lots of other kinds of crazy teachings. One of the things that they were doing was they were believed, so, so they, um, these false teachers that were in this church and that were influencing the people, the Christians in this church, um, some of the things they believed were wrong beliefs about who Jesus is. For example, some of them didn't believe that Jesus was really physically inhabiting the body of Jesus of Nazareth, that Christ wasn't really physically human. They said he just appeared to be human. Now, why is that a problem? Well, think, why would they think that? Well, first of all, they thought that because they had this Platonic philosophy going on in their heads, this dualistic idea that all matter, all tangible matter is evil and all spiritual things are good. And if, you're, if it's tangible, it's evil. If it's spiritual, it's good. That was Platonic philosophy, Plato, teachings of Plato. Well, if you take that and, and apply it to Christianity, you'd have to say, well, that means that Jesus couldn't really become fully human because he would be inhabiting evil wicked flesh and well Jesus would never do that he would never embrace anything sinful and so I get the logic but the problem is it contradicts with what scripture says and so we have to we have to choose which one's true how do we know and and scripture is not going to mislead us when we properly understand what it says another one is that he's not fully God when he inhabits the body he's human but he's not fully God he's not fully divine so that, that means that he's less than God. It means that, there's, that he's not, we have that. So there, there are plenty of those things that, that happen. This is where cults come from. This is where false religions come from. They, ha, they, they might even preach Christ, but they preach a different Christ. And of course, you maybe remember, Paul said, you know, if you preach any gospel other than this gospel, it's, just, it's a, be cursed. You should be cursed for preaching a false gospel. That's pretty strong, <laughs> Now, I want to go back, and I want to read chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 to you. Now, here's why. We need to remember what Christ is like. And this is one of those Christological passages I continue to take you back to because you need to know and hear and be familiar with these. There's, there's four that I always talk about. This one, John chapter 1, first 18 verses, Hebrews chapter 1, and Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. Those are the main Christological passages. And what I mean by that is these are passages that tell us who Jesus is and what he's done and what he does. All of those things that kind of cuts to the chase and says, here's the bottom line. After preaching through Revelation, I would throw chapter 1 of Revelation in there. The very first chapter talks a lot about who Jesus is. It's just really symbolic and, and a lot of metaphors there. So it's a little harder, but it's Christological too. I want to go back over this. I'm, I may read this every week because this is so important to understanding what Paul's saying about what's true. So if you want to know what Jesus is like, this is a great passage to read, starting in verse 15, talking about Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, Visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. 
There's the sustainer. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. That's the first one resurrected. And here's why. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. See how the, the resurrection makes him supreme? Okay, this is why we, our series is called Supreme. Verse 19, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell or live in him, in Christ. That's key to what we're going to talk about in a second. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and here's how, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Okay, God makes peace with humanity when we receive Christ as the one who died on the cross in our place for our sins because he was the only one that was qualified to do that because he hadn't sinned, okay? Now, that's, that's the Christ we worship. That's the Christ we follow. And when we get off of that or these other passages I referred to, we get into a territory where we start to, to conclude and draw different conclusions that lead us astray, and what does Paul say about that? See to it that no one has, takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Hollow meaning it's empty. Because it's not true, it's empty. That means there's nothing of value in it. Zero, zilch. Which depends, and then he, he describes it, which depends on this hollow, deceptive philosophy depends on human tradition and uh, elemental spiritual forces. What in the world are those things? Okay, human traditions, that sounds, okay, what are we talking about? A couple of things would have been taught here as tradition, right? You would have had the Old Testament scriptures, which would have been good. Scripture's good. Oh, Bible's good. But remember, the Pharisees erected extra rules and laws around the law, okay, that became, uh, that they made and kind of codified as scripture, even though it wasn't scripture. Okay, the traditions of men. So that was some of the traditions that were refer being referred to here. Okay, in our culture, it would be something like um, some of the sayings that were passed down to you from your parents and their grandparents. You know, well, if they jumped off the cliff, are you going to jump off too? You know, it's like okay, you know, it, it's those kinds of things. It may be some wisdom in them, and it may not, probably to the extent in which they're true. So human traditions were something that, that, that would have been pulled from, whether it was from the Jews or whether it was from uh, Platonic philosophy or, or wherever it was coming from. Those human traditions were being woven into the teachings of Christ. Now, keep this in mind, too. This is around the mid-50s, okay? Not the 1950s, the 50s. Literally, right? Christ was resurrected 30-ish A.D., so this is within 25 years of the resurrection of Christ. People are still alive that were around when Jesus was crucified, okay? And the New Testament was still being written, and it hadn't been, it hadn't been brought together as the canon called the New Testament yet. That was, it wasn't even complete, and it was going to be hundreds of years before the church would agree on what books would be considered the canon of the New Testament. So while they had some of these letters of Paul, or they may have had a copy of one of the Gospels, they didn't have the whole scriptures to go by. So when we talk about being deceived, it was easier for them to be deceived because they didn't have the scriptures at their fingertips like we do. And of course, even those who were around the scriptures, it was oral tradition teaching and what they could remember. They couldn't like go back at night and read and do their quiet time with the Bible because they didn't have a Bible, right? It would be 1,500 years before people would start having Bibles. 
because the printing press hadn't been invented yet. Okay? So, um, yeah. So let, I, let's keep going. I was going to take a rabbit trail, and I'm saying no. No to the rabbit trail. The elemental spiritual forces... What is that? Um, if you dig into this, and, and some of the commentators really helped me do this, when you dig into this, this is referring to, when you think of elemental forces, thinking, think things in creation. Think big things in creation. What are some of the biggest things in creation that we can see, right? Stars and planets, astronomy, okay? And what do people tend to do with those things? They tend to worship those things. Right in Egypt, Ra was the god of the sun. Who is this? You know, he's responsible for that. And 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 so you get astrology and horoscopes and and all the a lot of the occults that they, they they study the stars because they worship the stars instead of the creator of the stars. Isn't that interesting? Let's worship the star, not the stars. The star that created the one who created them. So that's something that causes people to get derailed. I mean, I know Christians that look at the horoscopes regularly in the newspaper. It's like, why would you do that? Why would you go seeking wisdom as if, right? It's not, just because it lines up sometimes with the truth doesn't mean it's that God is giving you that truth, okay? Right? Um, Because what you're doing is you're basically saying, this has authority in my life if you follow it. And that's not God. So you're giving your authority, you're, you're submitting to something else. And you might say, well, it's harmless, it's just kind of interesting or funny. And Okay, yeah, if it doesn't go any further, probably it's harmless. But those things tend to have attraction of, you know, you've heard of the slippery slope, right? You know, you start with something seemingly innocent, next thing you know. And, and so it's just unwise for us to pursue wisdom from anyone or any place except for God and his word just seems like a pretty practical, um, pretty straightforward, logical thing. Um, and then it adds this word spiritual in front of it, spiritual elemental forces. And, and what this is saying is that there are spiritual beings that you and I cannot see that are real and working, okay? Yes, there are angels, and yes, there are demons. And a demon is just an angel that disobeyed and rebelled against God and followed Satan, who was Lucifer at the time, Okay? A third of all the angels God created are demons, okay? And just like angels work, demons work. And, and for us to pretend that that's not happening is, is probably pretty naive and, and not a good idea for us to, to, um, to think that's just, that's just silly. Now, should we be, walk around in fear of those things? Um, I, I think we walk around in the fear of the Lord, and that gives us all we need to com- combat and deal with all the other things, Okay? And I don't want you, you know, we're not looking around every corner assuming there's a demon around every corner, right? They're not omnipresent. They're not all-powerful. God is the only one who is those things. And just because they work doesn't mean that you have to give in to them. It doesn't mean that they have power over you. Uh, You know, if you are following God through Jesus Christ, then you have the spirit of the living God in you, the Holy Spirit. And there's no one who can stand up to him. No one. No spirit can stand up to him. He's not, because remember, the angels were created and God is the creator. The Holy Spirit, Jesus, God the Father, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God created all the rest. So there's no way any of his creatures have any chance to stand up to the creator. It's just not even close, okay? But they're real. And for us to pretend that there's not some malicious force 
of, of living entities out there of trying to influence us for evil is just naive and foolish, okay? Now, let's not be silly about it, and let's not run in fear, okay? But let's also not do what I think the enemy would have us do, and that is pretend they don't exist, okay? So let's be wise about that. Uh, John says in First John, a lot of times, test the spirits. That's something that we need to be learning how to do, okay? And I'm, I have a lot to learn there. Okay, so see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So there's the flip, right? We want to, if you want to be captive, we want our thoughts to be captive to Christ. That's having the mind of Christ. That's Philippians 2, right? Have the mind of Christ. If I have the mind of Christ, then I will look like Christ because my thinking will influence my beliefs, which will result in behaviors that look like Christ. Okay, and, and that's what my aim is because I want to worship him not just when I stand here with you. I want to worship him 24-7, seven days a week. I want to do that all the time. Well, to do that means that I need to overcome all the other thoughts that run through my mind that are not Christ-like, and I need to um, allow my filter to work, and I also need to allow my self-discipline to work so that I live out the things I really want to live out and, and push aside all the rest. And that's how I deal with temptation. Jesus was tempted. Okay? He just never gave in to it. Adam and Eve were tempted. They gave in. We give in all the time. Okay? That's the difference. We don't have to, though. Do you, do you believe that? We don't have to give in to temptation, right? It's not inevitable. You don't have to do that. We do it, but that doesn't mean it has to happen. Now, that's the call. That's the charge. Resist. Okay? Now, here's some reasons to resist, and there's just a couple. For, no, verse 9. For in Christ... And you'll see Paul use that phrase in Christ a whole lot because we're in Christ and Christ is in us and that is just, that's hugely foundational to everything that we believe. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Okay, now you can, you, he, you can hear him already speaking to the Gnostics saying, Christ is fully human and Christ is fully divine. There should be no debate over this issue. Paul is setting the record straight. He is fully human. He... Uh, Jesus was born, he cried, he ate, he went to the bathroom, he smelled bad sometimes, he scratched when he itched, he had blood that was red running through his veins. He was human, and he suffered and he died. He was also fully inhabiting or inhabited by the divinity of our creator. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how that works. Philippians 2 gives us some insight into that when it says... Again, this is in verses, chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, where he says, in five, 6 through 9, really, where he says he emptied himself. The Greek word is kenosis, which means that literally part of that he poured out. Now, it doesn't mean he poured out divinity because that would contradict with what he said here. It means he set aside or emptied himself of some of the privileges that come with divinity. For example, Jesus, before he inhabits an earthly body, can be anywhere and everywhere at the same time. He can be in 1952 in Kansas, and he can be in 20, it could be in tomorrow in Japan at the same time. And he can be everywhere on the planet right now at the same time. Why? Because omnipresence means I can be everywhere because why? He's outside of creation. He, he created it. Obviously, if he created something, it's going to be lesser than his greatness. 
And for him to be, he can't take omnipresence into a human body because that human body can't be everywhere at the same time. So he set aside that, you see what I'm saying? He still had it, he just didn't use it. He said, I'm going to choose to limit myself into an earth suit. I'm going to be a man. First, I'm going to be a little boy, a baby boy, which we talk about at Christmas. Creator of the universe humbles himself and enters a baby boy body. Why would he do that? To reach us. To connect with us. To reconcile all things to him, which he's talked about here. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in a baby. So if the fullness of the Godhead can dwell in a baby, well, what's it say? Verse 10. And in Christ, you, he's talking to the Christians in Colossae, which means he's also talking to us. You have been brought to fullness. You and I have been filled with the same Christ who's filled with the same fullness of God. What is fullness of God? What does that include? It includes the glorious attributes of God that we can handle. In other words, I can't be omnipresent either. I can't be immutable, which means un, unchanging. I'm changing because I don't want to stay unchanged because I'm not perfect. But God's perfect, and he can do that. See? So there are some attributes of God that I can't take on, but there are some that I can. He's true. He tells the truth because he is true. He's love. He loves. He gives grace. He gives mercy because he's love. Right? That's why he's good. All right? He's holy. I can be holy. That's where justice comes from. Okay? I, I, I don't think we believe this verse. I don't think I even really realize this verse. But we're full of something. Right? How many times have we said to people, you're full of it? <laughs> well, what are you full of? What's overflowing? That'll give you a hint, right? What comes out of your mouth when you're not thinking? What are your actions when nobody's looking? That's the overflow of who you are. That's the overflow of what you believe about who's in you. Let me read it again, verse 9 and 10. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. So I, I don't know that I fully understand this illustration, but I want to share it because I think I'm just not smart enough because I think it, it sense, I sense that this is a good illustration. Imagine going to the Atlantic Ocean with a, a mason jar, okay? And from really, really up high, if you're looking down, you'd see two finite specks of, called people, and you see this inf, what looks like this infinite expanse of water. It's limited. It actually is finite. But comparatively, they look... And that speck takes that mason jar and fills up that jar, just immerses that jar and then pulls it out of the Atlantic Ocean. What's the jar full of? Atlantic Ocean. It's not full of all the Atlantic Ocean, but it is full of Atlantic Ocean, is it not? Now imagine that ocean represents the infinite fullness of God. And we are the jar, right? Second Corinthians 4, that we're jars of clay. Immerse that jar 
Because that's what Paul's saying. We're full of the fullness of Christ. We're full of it. Let's go live like it. That's awesome. Now, I wanna, I wanna use, I wanna, oh, and let me finish that, and then I have one last thing. And then it finishes. He says, he continues describing Jesus. He is the head over every power and authority. Christ is the head of every, over every power and authority. Head can mean source, but it also means um, authority, okay? Now, Paul says that as if that's a good thing. I don't know that we always believe that either because, again, we don't like people telling us what to do. We don't like other people making decisions for us. We want to be large and in charge of our lives. We don't want anybody else to be in charge. But there are advantages and disadvantages when we acknowledge that. All right. So I have an umbrella. I know this is supposedly superstitious. Uh, Bad luck. Jesus is covering me. I'm good. Okay. All right. Let's imagine that this represents the authority of God, this umbrella. Okay? Now, what are umbrellas used for? Let's just think for a second about umbrellas. What, what are umbrellas used for? When it's raining, we put them over our heads so that we suffer less from the rain coming from the sky, right? If it's snowing, we might play in the snow, but at some point, if you're around the snow a lot, you, you might even put this up to keep the snow off because it's not just wet when it hits your head, but it also is cold. If you're in a very hot place where there's a lot of sun, you might carry an umbrella to keep the, the sun from blistering your, your face or your head. Um, so again, it keeps us from suffering. It blesses us in a physical, tangible way when we submit to it. When we say, I'm going to place myself under it and be covered by it. Right? Now, now I want you to think about that. How many times do we, how, how silly would it be for us to walk down the road while it's raining like this. Right? That's going to that's gonna beg the question, right? And, and it's not a... It would be silly, but it's there. Why wouldn't I step under it? Because I don't want to be under its control or covering. I want to be where I want to be. Silly, right? And yet spiritually, we do this all the time. When God has said, I have an authority over you that is going to bless you, if you will just come underneath, I will protect you. Not from all suffering, right? What umbrella keeps you completely dry? None, right? God allows some of that to come through because he's teaching us and he's, he's testing us and he's causing us to remember, but he's got us under here because he says, I want you to experience my grace and mercy so that you can pull other people under the umbrella with you. Okay. What's it say? Now, I want you to listen. I'm going to read chapter 1, verses 15 through 20 again with the umbrella in my hand. I want you to listen to these verses. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. We're created for Jesus, right? That is the reason we're created, for his pleasure. And, and so therefore we exist for his pleasure. And when we live contrary to the way he designed us to live, we live for his displeasure. It's impossible to please him without faith, by the way. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. 
He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So, for in Christ all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head authority. He is the head over every power and authority. He's over every authority in our world. He's over every authority in the world beyond that we can't see, including Satan himself, who is a lion, a roaring lion, but he's still on a leash. Okay, because he, all right. So the question is, do I submit, right? Now, let's get back to our bottom line. What are we called to We are called to resist the deceptive and hollow teachings of this world. And how do we do that? By embracing the fullness of Christ in our life. That includes his authority. It includes his blessing. It includes his power and his presence, his comforting presence, his peace. How many of us were craving the peace of God? And we're not experiencing it simply because we're holding the umbrella over here because of pride because of self-whatever, full of ourselves instead of full of Christ. Listen, if you're in Christ, you are full of him. You have to decide, do I believe that? And what are the implications if I do? And then live, walk in that, right? Um, He says it, right? So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, he filled you up, right? Think about the picture of baptism. The word baptize literally means to immerse, so, spirit, so what do we do when we baptize someone? We lower them, we, we, they stand here, well, they stand in a little tub, and I hold, and I, and I buried together with Christ, and I lower them into the water. I, I literally push them under the water and then pull them right back out. But I push them, I immerse them, right? Spiritually, it's like the water fills in and, and it soaks them. It goes in and fills every place where it's dry, it gets wet. Spiritually, what happens when I am, the Bible says in Romans 6 that we are immersed in Christ. We're baptized together in Christ. That means we are immersed in the Spirit of God who fills every crack and crevice of our being. Okay, why wouldn't we want that? Full of Christ. Okay, it's symbolic in baptism, but when we come to know Christ in salvation, we are baptized in them. In my take, my reading, we are baptized into the Holy Spirit at that moment. We are immersed in him. We are fully immersed and we come out full of, inhabited by the spirit of the living God. And that's where our fullness comes from because he's the spirit of Christ and we are inhabited by him. And so therefore we have everything we need to walk in the way he would have us walk. We have no excuse that he has to change or do something because he hasn't done something. Our excuses fall back on us, and this is where we have to decide whether we're willing to take responsibility for our spiritual growth. Gene said it. You're responsible for your spiritual growth. You. You can't put this off on your parents. You can't put this off on somebody else. If you're not growing, it's on you. Okay? Now, the church is designed to make this easier because if you submit to and come into community with, then we help each other in this, right? And we need help. We, I need help, right? We sang about it. We need him to help us do this. 
And he's designed us to be communal. He's designed us to live in community with other believers so that we can spur one another on to good work, so that we can confess our sins to one another. We can pray together. We can love one another. We can serve one another. And all the other one another passages in Scripture, there's over 40. We do those one another's because that makes it easier for us to follow in obedience to what he's called us to do, which is to be under the umbrella of his blessing. And who doesn't really want to be under the umbrella of God's blessing? I mean, it's crazy not to, and yet people choose not to. I get it. And God gives them the freedom to say no, to reject him. And he gives them what they ask for. And that's the sad part of it. Because that's in a place called the lake of fire. And that's forever. And I don't want that. So how do you, how do you, how do you get filled up in the first place? All right, and in the the Bible, in the New Testament, over and over and over, it says, repent and believe, repent and believe, repent and believe. What does repent mean? Repent means if you're walking this way, and this way is I'm calling all the shots, and I'm doing things my way, and God basically brings me to the aha moment of, oh, it's not about me. Oh, I don't know what's best. Oh, I'm not qualified to be the Lord of my life. And I do an about face. Repent means to do that spiritual about face and say, no, God is the one that should be leading. God is the one that has authority over my life. He created me for heaven's sake. Why wouldn't I follow him as my authority? Doesn't he know? And so by repenting, turning away from my idea of how to live and surrendering that, I turn to him. And he's the prodigal father on the front porch with his arms open wide, ready to embrace you. And he immerses you with the fullness of God so that you're empowered to live the life that you and I really want. We want to be happy. And God says, well, you're not going to be happy unless you're holy. And the only one who can make you holy is my son, Jesus Christ. And so when we pray and we ask God to change us, we need to recognize that the change happens when we believe that Jesus did what we couldn't do on the cross. He died. He took the punishment that we deserved for us. He took our punishment right? Can you imagine growing up all those times that you took punishment from your parents and one time, just one time, one of your siblings stepped in and said, I want to take their punishment. And you went, that's stupid. You aren't the one that did it. And it's like, I don't care. I want to do it for you. So you won't have to. You would be floored, right? That would never happen, right? Whose sibling's going to do that? Jesus did that for us, for all of us spiritually, more profoundly than we can imagine. That's what the cross is about. Someone taking it for us so that we could live for them. And that's, that's what it's about. So let's pray. And um, if you want to receive that fullness, if you want to receive um, the gift of God, it's eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord, then you can verbalize a prayer that basically makes that faith real. I mean, that faith is real. The prayer kind of solidifies it in your mind, okay? It says, today you submitted to God. You surrendered. You stepped under the umbrella of God's grace, Okay? Now, with that comes responsibility, obviously, but you'll learn that along the way. That's sanctification. Today, we're talking about salvation. Well, we're talking about both, all of those, okay? But I want you to think about it. Every time you see an umbrella, I want you to ask yourself, am I standing under the umbrella or am I walking with it like this? Yeah. You know, there's a reason that um, the writer of Proverbs says that um, the person that does this is a fool (laughs) because... It's more than just being foolish, silly. It's fool morally is a moral judgment of God. Foolish. Let's not be. Let's walk in wisdom. Lord God, right now there are folks listening online or 
or watching, whether it's live or recorded or whether they're in the room, Lord, there are people within the sound of my voice that want to step under that umbrella right now. Some of them have been there before and they've stepped out and they want to step back. Lord, you are gracious and you promise us if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, I pray even now as they do that, that they would repent and believe that you forgive. And, Lord, there are some people that have never stepped under that umbrella before. They have never received the fullness of Christ through the Holy Spirit. And yet, they now understand that that can happen. And so, Lord, I pray for them right now that they would choose to surrender to you, a good and great God who has made a way to fill them with the fullness of Christ, who is holy, who is true, who is love, and to walk in that way and stop walking in their own way, but to walk in your way. Lord, I pray right now people would say, I surrender, I surrender, I surrender. Just all across this room, all across all the sound of my voice, people would just say to Jesus right now, to you, Lord, they just say, I surrender and step under the umbrella. Embrace your sovereign authority, your good and great leadership, headship, for you are Lord of all, whether we acknowledge it or not. And Lord, I pray that we would sense and feel your pleasure in that moment. That we would feel safe, secure, and at peace. That joy would fill our hearts and flood our minds as we realize that we have surrendered to our creator as you designed us to. But give us the loving freedom to reject. I pray you help us not just receive and believe, but walk and believe every step of our lives. Lord, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper by taking a piece of bread and a cup of juice to remember the price that was paid for our free salvation through Jesus Christ, I pray that we would understand that better than ever before, that your body was broken, Jesus, your blood was shed for us, so that we could have life eternal and abundant and that we would remember that through the symbolic taking of the bread and the cup. Help us to confess our sins so that we can come and do that in good conscience and with a clean heart as you forgive us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.